everybody. It is Monday, July 10th. I'm Mo Shwinunu. You're listening to the Mo News Podcast. And I'm Jill Wagner. This is the place where we bring you just the facts. And we read all the news and read between the lines so you don't have to. Jill, I want to take a quick moment at the top of the pod to wish my wife, Alex, a happy wedding anniversary. We have two years under our belt. Happy anniversary to you and Alex. Congratulations. And I should add, I am extremely thankful for her at this moment in time, Jill. She's uh, just getting through her third trimester right now. And I have to say, she's doing an incredible job. Handling it like a champ, especially given the heat and the smoke we've had and all that, uh, taking it all in stride. All right, hope everyone had a really nice weekend. Let's get to some headlines here. President Biden heading overseas for the NATO summit. What is on his agenda and why he says Ukraine not ready for NATO membership? Portugal having doubts about decriminalizing drugs. And so are some folks here at home in Oregon. Stop me if you've heard this before. More dangerous heat headed to the United States. We'll tell you where. Why comedian Sarah Silverman is suing OpenAI and Meta. Tis the season of barbecues. So which items are getting cheaper and which will be costing you more? A rare treat for many of us in the United States. The northern lights could be visible in as many as 17 states later this week. And your chance to win a billion dollars. The Powerball and Mega Millions jackpots keep going up. Moshe, as I promised you, if I won, I would not be at work. (laughs) So clearly, uh, I did not win. (laughs) No, no one did. No one did. These things keep going up. We'll tell you your odds. And Moshe will have on this day in history. Jill, some fun British royal history. Uh, Today began the shortest reign in British history, the one of Lady Jane Grey that lasts nine days. Who? Exactly. It's actually pretty fascinating. (laughs) (laughs) All right, let's start with what is shaping up to be a big week for U.S. foreign policy. President Biden arrived in Britain last night, starting a three-nation trip this week that will eventually take him to the big NATO summit in Lithuania. The alliance hopes to show solidarity with Ukraine in its fight against Russia, but it's not ready to admit Ukraine into NATO. U.S. leaders are insisting that the war with Russia must end Before Ukraine is invited to join the powerful military alliance, President Biden said during an interview on CNN that he doesn't believe there will be unanimity on the issue of Ukraine's membership while the nation remains in the middle of a war. Biden said, quote, we are determined to protect every inch of territory that is NATO territory, noting that if Ukraine were part of NATO, it would put the alliance at war with Russia. Biden added that it was premature to call for a vote on Ukrainian membership because the country still has to meet some NATO qualifications, including when it comes to its own democracy. Biden said he and Ukrainian President Zelensky have spoken at length about the issue of membership and said that the two have to lay out a rational path for Ukraine to be able to qualify But before he gets to the NATO summit, Biden will start meetings today with British Prime Minister Rishi Sunak at 10 Downing Street. He's going to later travel to Windsor Castle for a visit with King Charles. It's going to be their first meeting since the king was coronated. The talks with Charles are expected to include some climate initiatives. And Biden's also going to be participating in a forum that focuses on climate finance, especially when it comes to private finance for clean energy deployment, meaning we love the idea, we just don't want to pay for it. (laughs) Well, there was a big push among uh, corporations, trying to get corporations uh, to put up uh, money to really help with uh, clean energy development, Jill. And uh, it's related to some of the weather that we've been seeing of late, which we'll get to later in the podcast. But back to Ukraine here for a second. 
while Biden has made clear that they have no plans to admit Ukraine into NATO while this war is still happening, they still made a number of promises to Ukraine ahead of the trip. You can expect more later this week. Biden controversially approved sending cluster bombs to Ukraine on Friday. Now, cluster bombs have been controversial because they explode in the air over a target, which releases dozens to hundreds of smaller submunitions across a wide area. More than 120 countries have joined a convention banning the use of cluster munitions as inhumane, indiscriminate, in part because some of those sub-munitions I spoke about uh, remain unexploded, litter the landscape, and then endanger both troops and civilians. But the U.S. has a huge arsenal of these that we built back in the day, uh, and they have made the choice now to send them to Ukraine. White House officials saying over the weekend that Ukraine has agreed not to use these cluster bombs on Russian territory or in populated areas. It'll only use the weapons in its own territory, where the White House says Ukraine has a high incentive to limit the impact on civilians because it is, after all, Ukrainian citizens who could be at risk here. Still, Jill, a very controversial, uh, many people uh, around the world and some people in this country uh, upset to see the headlines about the cluster bombs going to Ukraine. In the meantime, Zelensky will head to the NATO summit. He hopes to meet with members there, uh, discuss more support uh, in getting more uh, military weaponry uh, to help support their counteroffensive right now. So expect more headlines on that later this week. One more thing related to NATO. Uh, we've reported that Finland was accepted into the alliance earlier this year, but Sweden is still being blocked by Hungary and Turkey. Keep in mind the way NATO works is all 31 countries now have to unanimously let in uh, a new country, a new member. Uh, Sweden has 29 votes. They're just missing the Turks and the Hungarians. Uh, Turkey uh, upset at a variety of things, including that Sweden won't extradite members of a Kurdish party that they deem terrorists in Turkey. Hungary uh, apparently saying they don't like how the Swedes criticize it, and they've had enough with Swedish moral superiority. Uh, so Biden will be trying to get uh, approval for Sweden over the weekend, working the Hungarians and the Turks. Among the things he has at his disposal, F-16s. Apparently, if we give enough F-16s to Turkey, apparently that will grease the wheels for the Turks to let Sweden in. Uh, that would have to get congressional approval here. But keep in mind, these are the various assets and tools at his disposal to be like Hungary, Turkey. Just let Sweden in already uh, so we can move on with uh, NATO uh, membership talks. Before he heads back to the U.S. Uh, next weekend, Biden will finish up the trip with Nordic leaders in Helsinki, Finland. Uh, Jill, as we talk about Finland and Sweden here, I have a fun Finnish fact for you, a Mo News-related Finnish fact. Tell me everything. So I found out over the weekend, I got a message from Derude. Some of you might know him as the famous Finnish DJ known for Sandstorm, which is like probably one of the largest techno songs, biggest techno songs in history. He and his wife follow Mo News. Very cool. And I love that he messaged you saying that he gets a lot of play <laughs> whenever there are sandstorms. <laughs> I guess other people also like to use that song uh, for anything sandstorm related. Yeah, he's like, anytime there's a sandstorm, a haboob, uh, that's one of the terms for them <laughs> around the world. Uh, he has an early heads up, so he's become an expert himself in sandstorms after creating that techno song years ago. Uh, I had used it over the weekend because there's a huge Saharan dust storm. Uh, headed to the U.S. or had, it came to the U.S. over the weekend, uh, impacting air quality across the Caribbean, Florida, and Texas. And so what better song to use than that techno hit from, you know, 
20 years ago. Okay, staying abroad, um, but a story that is hitting home for many Americans and one that got a ton of attention on our Instagram account this weekend. The Washington Post reports that some leaders in Portugal, which decriminalized all drug use, including cocaine and heroin, well, they're having some second thoughts about it. This was an experiment that inspired similar efforts here in the United States. In Portugal, police are blaming a spike in the number of people who use drugs for a rise in crime. Police are also less motivated to register people who misuse drugs. And there are now year-long waits for state-funded rehabilitation treatment, even as the number of people seeking help has fallen dramatically. Now, the return in force of visible urban drug use, meanwhile, that's leading the mayor of Porto, which is the nation's second largest city, and others to ask the question, is it time to reconsider Portugal's drug model? Portugal became this model for progressive jurisdictions around the world embracing drug decriminalization, like in the United States, in the state of Oregon, But again, now there's just this talk of fatigue. So back in 2001, Portugal threw out years of punishment-driven policies in favor of harm reduction by decriminalizing consumption of all drugs for personal use. Consumption remains technically against the law, but instead of jail, people who misuse drugs are just registered by police and referred to what are called dissuasion commissions. Treatment is voluntary. So there was initially good news within a few years HIV transmission rates via syringes, one of the biggest arguments for decriminalization, had plummeted. And that's because authorities were passing out syringes. Also, prison populations fell by about 17%. Overdose rates also dropped as public funds flowed from jails to rehabilitation centers. But recent numbers show the trend is going in a bad direction. The percent of adults who have used illicit drugs increased to 12.8% in 2022. That is nearly double what it was 20 years ago. Overdose rates have hit a 12-year high, and they have almost doubled in Lisbon from 2019 to 2023. Crime, including robbery in public places, spiked 14% from 2021 to 22. And it's blamed partly on an increase in drug use. Jill, we posted this story over the weekend, and it got hundreds and hundreds of messages on our Instagram account, which is why we wanted to follow up on this podcast uh, and in uh, today's Mo newsletter, particularly from Americans who are seeing some of these policies play out uh, in cities across the West Coast and now even in Boston, Philadelphia on the East Coast. So Portugal was this model. And now some places that accepted that model or had a similar model have started to pull back. Uh, We've reported on how Amsterdam is now restricting drug use uh, after having very laissez-faire policies for many years. Norway was going to mimic Portugal, but isn't entirely. Uh, They're really trying to do a piecemeal approach, uh, having seen the impact here. And on the home front, we've been talking about Oregon here, in particular the city of Portland. So Oregon state policy took effect in 2021, citing Portugal as a model, attempting to funnel people with addiction from jail to rehab. The idea was, Joel, that our prisons are overpopulated with just people with drug convictions, and there's got to be a different approach here uh, to it, and that by making some drug paraphernalia available, you are going to prevent disease spread, hepatitis, uh, HIV, as you mentioned. But the policies here have had a rough start. Police, like in Portugal, in Portland, have shown little interest in handing out these toothless citations for drug use because it's not really illegal anymore. And the police are like, well, it's not against the law, whatever. I'm not dealing with it. And I don't want to deal with a bunch of uh, high people in the streets. And like in Portugal, in Portland, uh, they're seeing very few people seeking out voluntary 
rehab, uh, just people who are going back for the drug paraphernalia and staying addicted. And so in Portland this year, overdoses have surged 46%. And this all comes as there's a new controversy now in the state as county authorities announced over the weekend that they will begin distributing tin foil, straws, and snorting kits to drug users across Portland this month. It's part of what the state calls their harm reduction program, which offers clean drug paraphernalia for those using hard drugs and offers services. The state says that they're adding the snorting kits and the straws here because of a change in drug use patterns, including the rise in fentanyl. So less people are now injecting. The focus was syringes for drugs like heroin, but they're seeing a drop in the services for syringes as fentanyl has become popular. So they believe by handing out these new drug kits, snorting kits, et cetera, for fentanyl, they'll be able to supervise more people taking fentanyl and then immediately be able to deploy Narcan as necessary. But city officials, including the mayor now in Portland, have had it. The mayor there is named Ted Wheeler. He's calling on the state to reconsider this, saying over the weekend on Twitter, I adamantly oppose this distribution to encourage using a drug that is the leading cause of death for Americans under 50. It's responsible for 190 fatal overdoses a day in the U.S. right now. He's talking about fentanyl here. He said that the state is engaged here in a misguided approach that also results in a greater risk for public safety and for those who simply want to enjoy our city without walking through a cloud of toxic smoke. Jill, as I said, we heard from hundreds of people on Instagram about this. We discussed this in the newsletter. It seemed the majority, and these are all Portland residents or Oregon residents, were concerned here. They feel like this plan isn't working, but we definitely heard defenders of this policy saying it needs to be given a chance to work. Um, it's brand new. The previous system of just imprisoning everybody who's addicted to drugs uh, didn't work. Uh, many people, though, saying there's got to be a middle ground here between these treatment centers and uh, putting everyone in prison uh, because mass incarceration didn't work. But this isn't working if you walk around certain parts of Portland these days. Moshe, I was blown away by some of the responses that that we were getting on the Instagram account. And we just want to read a few of them because I think that they really paint a picture of what life is like there. Uh, somebody wrote, recently left Portland for exactly this reason. Hard to justify the cost of living with all of this. It's a beautiful place, but zero regrets leaving. Someone else uh, writing in saying, I am a liberal who lives in Portland. The open drug use and homelessness is out of control. I see people openly shooting up everywhere. And Mosh, uh, you can imagine what that must be like if you have kids and you're walking around and seeing that. Yeah, some people have wrote in saying, I have to explain to my kids why there's people lying on the sidewalk, you know, totally high uh, in front of our home. And so you see a lot of back and forth here. Obviously, this has been used as a political issue uh, by the right. But you hear from Democrats here, liberals here, who say that maybe the results here are leading them to reconsider this kind of open decriminalization. And it appears here that uh, it's gone too far even for the mayor of Portland, uh, especially this most recent plan to hand out paraphernalia for fentanyl, which has killed more than 100,000 Americans this year and continues to grow. Uh, and, you know, they're trying to weigh what to do here. And Jill, Portland's not alone. Uh, there are uh, versions of these policies in effect in L.A., San Francisco, Seattle, Philly, Boston. I think Portland, Oregon kind of has the most aggressive one similar to Portugal. Uh, but you are seeing these experiments take place. And at the same time, uh, they'll tell you that they've been able to save a lot of lives through it, the, the advocates for this program, by again, having supervised drug use. And yet the critics will say that it's not leading enough people to rehab, that basically is just basically ensuring that people addicted to drugs can continue to do it, that they haven't opened up enough treatment facilities in order to get people away 
from using those drugs. I don't think we've heard the last of this. Um, and it's definitely a story that uh, we at Mo News will stay on top of. Okay, now let's get to our sponsors this week, starting with Bolin Branch. We often talk on this podcast about forever chemicals and just the bad stuff that's in our food and drinking water. But did you know that most bedding is made with harsh chemicals like formaldehyde, synthetic pesticides, and toxic dyes? I did not. Uh, well, Bolin Branch is changing the standard for good. Bolin Branch makes the softest, most luxurious sheets without any toxins or harsh chemicals. They use 100% organic cotton. Uh, Bolin Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Mosh, you and I both have Bolin Branch sheets, and I can tell you, that is actually true. Um, I remember when you first said that, that they get softer the more that you wash them. And I thought, okay, yeah, right. But I can attest they really do get softer the more you wash them. They really have this luxurious feel. They're extremely soft. And with all this hot weather that we've been talking about, they are breathable. Uh, they're very good for the heat. And Moshe, as we've mentioned before, loved by millions of people, including four U.S. presidents, Bowling Branch sheets come in 10 colors in all sizes. Um, best of all, they've got a 30-night worry-free guarantee. You've got free shipping and returns on all orders in the United States. Sleep better at night with Bowl and Branch sheets. For a limited time, you can get early access to their annual summer event. So just use the code MONEWS. You get 20% off today at bowlandbranch.com. That is bowlandbranch, B-O-L-L-A-N-D, branch.com. The promo code MONEWS. All right, now to our other big sponsor this week, Athletic Greens. We're always talking about health trends, food trends here on the pod, how it's hard to get all your nutrients. Well, one way to get the important ones is using the Athletic Greens AG1 powder. It's just one scoop with a glass of water in the morning. AG1 powder is easy, quick, and lets you get on with your day knowing that you've gotten over 75 important ingredients, including tons of vitamins and minerals. It also has pre and probiotics to support your digestion and your gut health. And they have a special deal right now for Mo News listeners. With your first purchase of AG1, Athletic Greens is giving all of you a free one-year supply of vitamin D and five free travel packs of AG1. You can visit drinkag1.com slash Mo News. Again, drinkag, the number one, dot com slash Mo News to take advantage of this offer. That's where you can get a discounted monthly subscription or try it just one time for one month. Again, drinkag, the number one, dot com slash Mo News. It's an opportunity to really start to take ownership of your health. All right, time now for the speed read from NPR. A long and intense heat wave is about to bake parts of Arizona, New Mexico, and California. Meanwhile, a second heat wave is causing life-threatening temperatures in South Florida. The National Weather Service is warning people in several cities, including Phoenix and Miami, to avoid the sun this week. So over the next week, Phoenix is forecast to reach highs of 106 to 115 degrees, Forecasters think that the worst of the heat will come in the middle of the week. Now, to put that into perspective, the normal average high for July, uh, 106.5 degrees. So this is even hot by Phoenix standards for this time of year. The scorching temperatures come after eight consecutive days of highs above 110 degrees in Phoenix. The combination of hot, dry, and windy conditions could also lead to fires. Swaths of the Southwest and Florida are expected to see record-setting temperatures as well. Jill, in Miami this year has proven to be the hottest on record. The city's already broken 15 record daily temperatures, seven of which took place in June. 
And we're talking about parts of the country, Jill, that are not strangers to uh, really hot summers. But again, they're even breaking records by Arizona and Florida standards here. Uh, When it comes to Florida, there's more than 100,000 people who work outside every day. And that's what they're particularly concerned about, ensuring that those people are able to get indoors and are getting enough fluid. Uh, More than 10,000 Americans go to the hospital every year related to the heat, and more than 700 die of heat-related causes every year. Uh, It's actually the biggest killer for Americans when it comes to weather-related death. Jill, going global here for a second, over the past week, the average global air temperature on several days appeared to be the hottest on record, going back at least until the 1970s, uh, likely back to the mid-1800s here. NOAA has recently started putting out a daily global average that takes into account both the Southern Hemisphere, which is in winter right now, and the Northern Hemisphere, which is in summer right now. And you might have seen those headlines last week, like hottest ever, hottest ever, hottest ever. There are some estimates out there that this is the hottest in 100-something thousand years. That's hard to document because we haven't really documented global temperature until recent times. But just looking at overall trend lines, that's the sense here. Nevertheless, we are seeing the highest global average temperature, at least going again back to the 1970s uh, in the past week. All right, from the tech website, The Verge, comedian and author Sarah Silverman, as well as authors Christopher Golden and Richard Kadri, are suing OpenAI and Meta, each in a U.S. district court, over dual claims of copyright infringement. The suits allege, among other things, that OpenAI's chat GPT and Meta's systems were trained on illegally acquired data sets containing their works. They claim that they were acquired from shadow library websites like Library Genesis and Z Library and others, noting that the books are, quote, available in bulk. Now, in both claims, the authors say that they did not consent to the use of their copyrighted books as training material for the company's AI models. Their lawsuits each contain six counts of various types of copyright violations, negligence, unjust enrichment, and unfair competition. The authors are looking for statutory damages, restitution of profits, and more. In the suit against OpenAI, the trio offers exhibits showing that when prompted, ChatGPT will summarize their books, infringing on their copyrights. Silverman's Bedwetter is the first book shown being summarized by ChatGPT in the exhibits, while Golden's book Ararat is also used as an example, as is Cadre's book Sandman Slim. This is fascinating, Mosh. I, I'm I'm genuinely curious how this is going to uh, play out. Yeah, this is so new. The law hasn't figured out how to deal with it. And it's interesting to see already these copyright lawsuits take place. The way that AI works, the reason why it's so good is they have to just help it ingest information and data. But in this case, the data includes copyrighted materials. And OpenAI so far has never revealed what books are part of the data sets that it feeds into ChatGPT. The court document alleges, though, that many are likely to come from what's called shadow libraries, uh, websites that illegally aggregate content that is otherwise not readily accessible. Legal experts watching this anticipate many more lawsuits involving copyright law and generative AI in the future. The Authors Guild, which is a U.S.-based advocacy group that works to support the rights of writers published an open letter last month calling on the chief executives of big tech and AI companies to obtain permission 
from writers to use their copyrighted work in training generative AI programs and compensate writers fairly. Uh, Jill, as we've been talking about the various strikes or the threatened strikes in Hollywood, this is a huge issue that's coming up among the writers and directors and actors out there. How will the studios in the future be using AI, use their likenesses, especially given that you know actors and singers have so much publicly available material and AI has gotten so good at replicating it. So uh, defending creatives here, what is is the new issue when it comes to AI? And we just went through this, right? We went through this with the internet. We went through this with Napster and music. Uh, and it appears now with the latest digital evolution, uh, we're now going to see it play out in the courts here when it comes to artificial intelligence. And it comes, interestingly, as June numbers show that chat GPT usage is actually down for the first time ever, attributed to kids being out of school. <laughs> Jill, Jill, that was a suspicion. I can't even say it Jill, without laughing. Jill, that was a suspicion because uh, many uh, media outlets reported it straight and a bunch of teachers messaged me being like, you think it's because all my students are out? Like, that could explain it. But at the same time, uh, a number of companies, I heard from companies who say that they're getting a lot of bad information from AI right now, inaccurate information. So some companies that got really excited about in the spring stopped using it until they feel like AI gets better. Fascinating stuff. I am curious where we're going to be a year from now, uh, a decade from now. Jill, if we take any days off this summer, uh, we should try to experiment with a Mo News podcast AI episode, perhaps. <laughs> Most, you know, I tried for research purposes only to uh, have chat GPT write a podcast episode or at least one story. And it wasn't able to because it couldn't use new information. The info that it uses is is a little bit older. Right, but I right, believe yeah. their latest update um, does use new information. So maybe I'll try it again. And I feel like there's enough of our voices out there now on YouTube uh, that they could take our voices and potentially literally just put up the whole podcast for us. Uh, rest, <laughs> rest assured, everybody, if we do one of those episodes, we'll be we'll make very clear up top that you're listening to Robot Motion Jill and not the real thing. Not a bad idea, though, for those last couple of weeks in August <laughs> <laughs> when no one wants to work. Um, all right, from the Wall Street Journal, if you have been barbecuing and hosting this summer, you might have noticed that the chicken breasts and pork chops are finally a little bit cheaper but it's the ketchup, potato chips, and crackers that are going to cost you. While the prices for meat, eggs, produce have started to drop, the price for potato chips rose an average of 17%. Mayonnaise up 23%. Applesauce uh, jumped 22%, among other items. The CEOs of the country's major retailers not happy. They're resisting further price increases from the country's packaged food giants and also pushing for lower prices. But this process is taking longer than they had hoped. It comes as suppliers are trying to restore or protect their profit margins. Packaged food companies from General Mills to Kellogg have cited their own higher costs for labor transportation and ingredients as justification for the increases. Now, those increased costs weighed on food companies' profit margins as inflation ramped up. Margins are recovering now, though in many cases have not reached pre-pandemic levels. Yeah, this is a fascinating story uh, that got a lot of reaction also over the weekend on the Instagram account, Jill. Basically, in one corner, you have Walmart, Kroger, uh, the big grocers. And then in the other corner, you have General Mills, Kellogg, Kraft, etc. And caught in the middle, you have the consumers who've been pushing back against the rising prices, turning to the cheaper versions of the packaged groceries, uh, typically the label put out by the grocery stores. And this battle has gotten to the point, Jill, where apparently some grocers, including Amazon's Whole Foods, ha are saying that uh, if some of these uh, packaged goods 
uh, manufacturers don't lower their prices, they're going to stop carrying their products. Now, as far as the defense from some of these companies, the Kellogg CEO was quoted as recently as saying that the cereal and snack maker is trying to shore up their profit margins uh, that are essential to the company's survival. He says they tried their best uh, during COVID, during recent inflation spikes to keep prices low, but they can't do that right now. And he added, according to the journal, we make no excuses or apologies for trying to protect our margins. Uh, Keep in mind, their margins uh, impact their stock price, impact their shareholders. So these companies need to show a certain profit margin uh, to show growth here. And that's why you see some of these prices staying stubbornly high. But what that means is that the store brands are growing in sales. The chief food officer over at Target said in late June that their brands, including Good & Gather and Favorite Day, are growing almost twice as fast as the national brands in their stores. And you're seeing some of the same things play out in other grocery stores. Look, Mosh, something's got to give. I, <laughs> it's just so expensive to go food shopping. I know I say the same thing. I feel like it's, I'm a broken record every time we talk about this. But especially when you're trying to feed a family, it is a fortune. It, it really is. The domino impact of COVID, supply chain, um, you know, all these various trend lines um, and the very shortages continue to play out now, just, you know, almost three years later. Okay, moving on in lighter news, literally. Um, this from CBS News, a heads up, also <laughs> literally. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God, we stories. are ridiculous, yes. officially. Um, the Northern Lights could be visible in more than a dozen states this week. The stunning display of light from outer space is expected to be visible in Canada and the United States from Alaska to Maryland, weather permitting, between July 12th and 13th. The aurora borealis produces neon green waves in the night sky when electrons from space collide with atoms and molecules of the upper atmosphere of Earth. And we've got some powerful solar flares from the sun um, to thank for that this week. Aurora activity will be high on Wednesday night, July 12th, and the display is forecast to be visible in Washington, Iowa, Illinois, Ohio, and Massachusetts, as well as in Canadian cities like Edmonton and Winnipeg. Activity will also be high on July 13th with visibility forecast in Montana, Minnesota, Wisconsin, Michigan, and down to Maryland and Indiana. The lights will also be visible in Canadian cities like Vancouver and Toronto. So usually you get to see this way up north, uh, but it's a treat uh, and a rarity typically to see this in the lower 48. Uh, But keep in mind, it's only if it isn't cloudy near you. So definitely check your local weather forecast uh, and keep your fingers crossed. NOAA has an animated forecast for the lights. We'll include a link in the show notes here and says the best time to see them is within an hour or two of midnight usually between 10 p.m. and 2 a.m., so way past Jill's bedtime. (laughs) Luckily, I have seen the Northern Lights before. All right, so it's old news to her, but for the rest of you who have it, (laughs) you're going to have to stay up late or take a nap uh, uh, to be able to see them potentially where you are. Uh, A fun fact, solar winds travel 93 million miles to Earth's atmosphere from the sun. I posted, uh, I think on Friday on the Instagram feed, uh, that we have a rare peak in solar storms right now. Uh, this, the sun goes through a, a decade-plus phase, and we are at the phase of kind of peak solar flares. So this is the fun part of solar flares. On the downside, uh, depending on how powerful they are, they could interfere with communication satellites uh, and radio and so keep in mind that if you see some funky things happening where you are, you typically get a heads up on this stuff, but we'll have the sun to thank for that, or in this case, blame for that as well. 
Back to the fun part of this story, Mosh. Um, if you could see the Northern Lights, you definitely should. I saw them in Iceland and it was a somewhat cloudy night. So I don't think that uh, my husband and I even got the full feel, um, but it's awesome. It, it's so cool. Yeah, second Finland mentioned the broadcast. When I was in Finland uh, like 16 years ago, I got to see them up there. And that's typically, again, where you can see them close to the Arctic Circle. Uh, so uh, definitely if it's a clear night where you are on a Wednesday or Thursday night, Look up. From NBC News, the Powerball Prize now up to an estimated $650 million for tonight's drawing after there were no Powerball jackpot winners in Saturday's drawing. The cash option for tonight will be an estimated $328.3 million. It ranks as the ninth largest Powerball jackpot on record and the second largest this year. Three tickets sold in California, Illinois, and Colorado matched the first five numbers for a prize of a $1 million each. Saturday's winning numbers were 7, 23, 24, 32, 43, and the Powerball was 18. So given the way odds work, you could totally play those numbers again. Though interestingly, Jello was 7-7 over the weekend. We were talking about that, and the number 7 came up. And the first ball up is 7. <laughs> Not too shabby for the people who got a million bucks, but... Uh, Jill, a billion is better than a million. As Justin Timberlake said in uh, The Social Network. Right, Justin Timberlake playing Sean Parker in The Social Network. But we'll give it to Timberlake because he he sold it. He's like, you know what's even cooler than a million? A billion. And that's the pitch from uh, Mega Millions and Powerball this week uh, because it's not only Powerball that didn't have a winner, Jill. Mega Millions also didn't have a winner over the weekend. So if you don't hit it big in Powerball tonight... Mega Millions, uh, that jackpot is tomorrow night, is at about $480 million right now. Uh, both Powerball and Mega were last won back in April and haven't had a winner since. Uh, just so you know your odds tonight, one in $292 million, Jill, of landing the big prize. You have a better shot of getting struck by lightning. But I, but I would much rather, but I would much rather win Powerball. Where do I sign up for the Powerball win? <laughs> 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 if you win, definitely stay indoors for a while because those are some odds. All right, now time for On This Day in History, on this July 10th. We're going to begin in the 16th century, Jill, as we do sometimes, in the year 1553. Because on July 10th of 1553, the shortest reign in British royal history began. Lady Jane Grey becomes queen on July 10th, and her reign lasts nine days. She was just 15 years old at the time, already married. Uh, she was proclaimed queen after the death of her cousin, King Edward VI. She was actually fifth in line for the throne, but was his personal choice because she was a Protestant. This was during the rise of those religious uh, battles at that time. He actually, King Edward, bypassed his half-sister Mary, Queen Mary, Bloody Mary, uh, who, of course, was Henry VIII's daughter. She was a Catholic, and he's like, no, I'm going to give it to my cousin, Lady Jane Grey. She's 15, but she's a Protestant, and she'll do a swell job. Well... It lasted nine days. The powers behind the throne, the Privy Council, switched allegiances on July 19th, and Mary Tudor, Bloody Mary, becomes queen. Poor Lady Jane goes to the Tower of London and gets beheaded six months later. But there's your trivia there. The shortest reign in British history, nine days, Queen Lady Jane Grey. All right, fast forward now to the 20th century. Telstar 1, the first communication satellite to transmit live TV signals around the world and telephone conversations across the Atlantic, launched on this day 61 years ago in 1962. It inaugurated a new age for electronic communications, where, again, you could have live TV signals around the world. All right, on this day in 1991, Boris Yeltsin was sworn in as the president of Russia. It inaugurated a new era 
or so we thought in Russia, of democracy, not so much, massive corruption, major issues in the country, and less than a decade later, a guy by the name of Vlad Putin would take over. All right, a bit of music history before we go. On this day in 1965, the Rolling Stones topped the charts for the first time with I Can't Get No. Do-do-do. Satisfaction still a hit. They're performing all these decades later on tour. And Jill, one more piece of music history on this day. 42 years ago, Rick James released his hit, Super Freak. She's a super freak, super freak. She's super freaking now. When I think super freak, I just think Little Miss Sunshine. Jill, such a good movie. I feel like I need to see that. I haven't seen it in, in, in a while. And uh, we had some sad news last week as Alan Arkin, the actor, who performed in a, in a whole bunch of shows and films, uh, including uh, Little Miss Sunshine, passed away. All right, and on that depressing note... Um... <laughs> <laughs> Moshe, Mosh, how do you keep taking all these stories and giving us a... Like, like I took... Sorry, I apologize. The Northern Lights, today. okay. The Northern Lights, I made wah-wah. I told you that you have a better chance of getting struck by lightning than winning the lottery. And here I am talking about Little Miss Sunshine and mentioning that one of the actors passed last week. So I'm sorry to all of you on this Monday... I really want to send you on a positive note. Jill, can you do it? It's like the um, SNL Debbie Downer skit. Um, <laughs> so let's quit this thing while we're ahead. Um, thank you, everyone, for listening to the Mo News Podcast. Follow us and subscribe so you don't miss an episode. And review us in the App Store so we can continue to grow. And thanks to all of you who are joining Mo News Premium. We have a special pod out for you today. Uh, looking at the battle between Amazon and Walmart. It's Amazon Prime Week. It's Walmart Plus Week. Uh, there's a new book out on the history of Amazon and Walmart. Talk to the author. It's a fascinating story. And over on the premium Instagram account over the weekend, we did a deep dive per one of your requests on the United Nations. The history, the good, the bad, and the ugly. The premium Instagram account is a place where we're answering your questions almost daily, uh, doing deep dives on various issues. Uh, and by joining Mo News Premium, it's a chance to support this account, but also get access to those extra podcasts, the extra content. You can do that over at mo.news slash premium. You didn't answer my question on Mo News Premium. Do you remember what it was? Jill, as a premium member, I apologize to you. <laughs> what was your question? I, I asked you about why Beyonce was canceling some of her, her tour dates. I'm going to go back there and answer it immediately at the end of this taping. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Bye. I, I thought it was related to something I was discussing. You're like, no, Moj, I just had a question about Beyonce and I would like it answered. I was wondering, given all these connections you have to famous singers and DJs at the Jonas Brothers, um, if you maybe had the skinny on what was going on. I'm going to look into it for you, Jill. As we do here at Moj News Premium, we want to answer your questions. And I also wanted to, to test you and see if you were going to actually answer it. Okay, everybody. Uh, bye. Thanks for listening to the Mo News Podcast.